Barristers have played a significant role in Irish public life in the 20th century as lawmakers, politicians, civil servants, broadcasters, judges, academics and social reformers. A new book from Four Courts Press examines the profession from the turbulent 1920s right up until the Celtic Tiger years. It's called Barristers in Ireland, an evolving profession since 1921. It looks at who the barristers were, how they worked and how they were perceived. It also examines the impact of partition, the experiences of women at the bar, and traces how the profession changed over the course of the 20th century. The author is Dr. Neve Howland, Associate Professor at the UCD Sutherland School of Law. And Neve joins me now. You're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you. Um, you pick 1921 as the starting point for the book, the year the War of Independence ends in a truce, the year the Anglo-Irish Treaty is negotiated. Would the barristers called to the bar in an independent Ireland have been involved in the dull course system which preceded the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the courts essentially set up to replace the British legal system. There would have been some barristers involved in the Dole Courts, um, but not very many. Most of the lawyers who worked in the Dole Courts would have been solicitors rather than barristers, but some barristers were involved and people like James Creed Meredith, for example, or Cahar Davitt, were later appointed to the superior courts that were set up after 1924. But I th- I would assume that barristers would have been having quite a hard time if they weren't accessing the dull courts because a lot of the litigation had transferred from the British system to the Sinn Féin system, to the dull system. Yeah, so we, we've got reports of the assizes where very few cases were being brought because everything was being dealt with in the alternative courts, in the dull courts. So, yeah, I think business was quite slow for a lot of barristers uh, around 1920, 1921. And what part, what role did they play in cementing the rule of law in the the new state? Because one of the first things that has to happen is that a new constitution has to be established. So you have a committee meeting, well, effectively chaired by Daryl Figgis. Uh, did, uh, did barristers play an active part on that committee? They certainly did. Um, so half of the people on that committee were barristers, And even the secretariat who supported the committee were also qualified barristers. So you can really see that, you know, having barristers or having lawyers involved in drafting a new constitution for the new state really lended an air of legitimacy, I would say, to the 1922 constitution. Then the following year in 1923, another committee was established to set up a new system of courts. And that had quite a lot of representation from barristers as well. And that resulted in the Courts Act 1924, which of course set up the courts that we have today. Um, So barristers played a really important role in the establishment of the new state in the 20s. How did you become a barrister back in 1921? Was it very different? Was it any different to how it is today? Probably not that different. So in order to qualify as a barrister, you had to complete a two-year course at the King's Inns, which is in Dublin on Constitution Hill. And then once you'd completed that, you were awarded the degree of barrister at law and you were called to the bar, which was really a special ceremony in the Supreme Court where the Chief Justice would call the name of each newly qualified barrister in turn. And from that point on, they were entitled to practice at the bar. 
Now, one of the reasons why you picked 1921 in particular, because this was the the first year in which women, two women, were actually called to the to the bar. And uh, surprisingly, we were ahead of the, well, because it was then, the rest of the United Kingdom in, in that regard. We certainly were. Um, so the Sex Disqualification Removal Act was passed in 1919. Um, And that removed the last legal barrier for women qualifying as lawyers. So the first two women barristers qualified in Ireland in 1921, Avril Deverell and Frances Kyle, a little bit ahead of the first barristers in England. In the last year or so, there have been quite a few um, commemorations of the first women barristers and the legal profession has really reflected on and marked the, the achievements of those women. But there was no rush of women to join the bar from 1921 onwards, was there? No, surprisingly not. Um, so in the years following, really only a couple of women a year chose to qualify as barristers. Out of how many who would have been called to the bar at that stage? So there would have been an average 24, 25 people a year qualifying and maybe an average of one to two women out of that so 5 year. to 10% every year, basically. Very low. Some years there were no women. It really wasn't until the 1970s, so 50 years later, that there was a big, a sharp increase in the number of women qualifying as barristers. That suggests to me that women were looking at what was going on in the law courts and were saying, mm, no, it's too difficult to make a living as a female barrister. Would that have been the case? That could have been part of it. There were certainly women who qualified and who later left to do other things. A lot of women would have left when they got married or decided to become solicitors instead because barristers were self-employed and that was quite difficult for many people. Whereas if you worked in a solicitor's firm, you had a little bit more security and I suppose you had more colleagues and you had more people to work with. You might have had a pension, in other words. You might even have had a pension. Certainly you wouldn't have had a pension as a, as a barrister. Um, when it came to women taking silks so or becoming senior counsel, pretty spotty record, really, up until the 1990s, as what, what I got from the book. Yeah, the, the first women didn't take silk or didn't become senior counsel or senior barristers until many, many years after women qualified for the bar. The first woman to take silk was Mella Carroll, who was later appointed as a judge. But up until the 90s, really, it was very, very rare for for women to be appointed as senior counsel. Let's backtrack a little bit and go back to 1922 and the, the burning of the four courts. Obviously, the law library goes with it. What was the impact of that on the profession? I think the impact of the destruction of the four courts was was pretty severe on barristers. So, first of all, they'd lost their workplace. So they all worked out of this communal space called the law library in the four courts, and that was completely destroyed. They, of course, lost all of the books and the legislation and the cases, all the tools that they needed to actually be able to, to do their jobs. And they'd also lost their wigs and their gowns, which were stored in the law library. So they didn't even have the clothes that they needed to wear for their work. And I think also there has to have been an impact on morale, you know, to to lose your workplace and all the things you need to do your job um, so suddenly. So that was quite severe. Where did they move to? What I mean, because obviously the, the the law library was completely uninhabitable for a number of years until the four courts was rebuilt. It was uninhabitable, but it was so important that the machinery of justice would continue to to operate. So the law library and the courts operated out of the King's Inns on Constitution Hill for about six months. 
it was quite cramped. I don't think the conditions were ideal. And then in 1923, they moved to a temporary law library that was opened up in St. Patrick's Hall in Dublin Castle. The symbolism of that is interesting. Very interesting. So the courts sat in Dublin Castle for the first six or seven years of the existence of the state. And then everybody moved back to the four courts when it was rebuilt and refurbished in the 30s. Uh, something else that happens in 1921, obviously, is what it has effectively had happened, I suppose, with the Government of Ireland Act the previous year, and that's partition. In the context of a partition, what happens to the, legal, the Irish legal profession? So initially, not a lot changed because it was one legal profession. It was one bar for the whole island. As time went on, it became apparent that it was going to be quite difficult to to run this in practice. So all barristers still qualified in the King's Inns, but the King's Inns essentially opened up a a Belfast branch. So they had a professor giving lectures in Belfast and they had a library in Belfast. um, So people who were in the new state of Northern Ireland could, you know, do their legal training in Belfast, but they were still called to the bar in both jurisdictions. As the 20s progressed, the relationship between the Southern Committee of the King's Inns and the Northern Committee grew quite difficult. The laws in both jurisdictions were changing and moving in quite different directions. So there was legislation being passed and that was making it quite difficult for someone to practice in both jurisdictions. So really from the 20s up until the 70s, there wasn't a very close relationship between barristers in the North and barristers in the South. You couldn't practice automatically in the courts of Northern Ireland if you qualified down here, for example. And then what happens during the Troubles? During the Troubles, I think efforts were made by individuals who were senior members of the the judiciaries in both states to try and recreate links between the North and the South. Some of this was done informally through, you know, socialising, having golf matches and things like that. But very, very tentatively, things started to, to improve. And I suppose one of the difficulties in the 1920s would have been posed by the first Chief Justice, Hugh Kennedy, who had been also Attorney, Attorney General in the Free State Government. And uh, that was his enthusiasm for the Irish language. Mm-hmm. So he was um, a very committed um, Irish language enthusiast. And he had a vision that in this new state, all practising lawyers would be able to conduct cases through the Irish language. Now, it was some years before steps were taken um, to have any provision for the Irish language in the courts. But his ideal was that everyone should be able to do this. And this really wasn't something that the Northern Ireland uh, barristers were particularly keen on. I think there was also some resentment, was there not, in Northern Ireland to uh, people who were being called to the bar in the Irish Free State, who perhaps Northern barristers would not have viewed as being uh, properly qualified. One of the prime examples being the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins. Yeah, that's right. So during World War I, certain barristers were given exemptions from their King's Inns examinations on the basis of their military service. So they could sort of skip ahead on that basis. And in the early 1920s, there were still individuals being granted these exemptions. So they were being allowed to qualify as barristers without necessarily having done the full course and taken all the exams. And this became something that did irritate the Northern Benchers and the Northern um, members of the bar. And then when the decision was made to grant Kevin O'Higgins an exemption, I suppose it was 
not quite he, the he was a qualified solicitor. He was a qualified solicitor and, you know, extremely, extremely well qualified and very experienced, but hadn't you know done any of the qualifications to become a barrister. Now, you're also interested in how barristers were perceived or have been perceived or were perceived in this case in the, in the 20th century. I think perhaps the perceptions, perceptions haven't changed all that much. Um, how do you think they're perceived? Do you think that they don't get a fair quack of the whip? So I think if we look back to the first half of the 20th century, I think like most professions in Ireland at that time, I, I do think they were perceived with a lot of respect and they were seen maybe as being a bit elitist, maybe being not very representative of the wider society. Um, and people may have been a bit intimidated by, by barristers and there weren't very many of them at that stage. As time went on, I think probably the public perceptions of the bar were less positive. For example, there were a few things in the 1980s that probably brought the whole system of justice into disrepute. So, you know, things that we're still talking about today. So if we think about the Kerry Babies case, the Stardust inquest and issues like that, they probably didn't reflect very well on the Gardaí, the judiciary and the legal profession, not necessarily barristers specifically. And then I think in the 1990s, when very large, expensive tribunals were running and people perceived that there were very hefty fees being earned um, by people at that. I think that had a very negative impact on public perceptions too. You mentioned numbers and that's, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, there would not have been that many barristers. In one of your chapters, I think it's chapter five, you have uh, you have a graph <laughs> and it's it's very, very notable. There's a huge leap in numbers of barristers in the 1980s. What accounts for that? I think the numbers of people qualifying for the bar would generally have been impacted by the general uh, economic situation in the country. There were no, there wasn't a cap on numbers, so it was probably easier to get into this profession than it was to get into other professions. Not necessarily easier to, to be successful and to make a good living. You paint a very broad picture of the profession. You look at how barristers contributed to, to public life outside of, of litigation. Just give me a few examples of that. Well, there were quite a number of barristers who were involved with writing plays, performing plays, writing for TV and so on. One barrister who had quite a lot of involvement with RTE was Liam Devalley. So he hosted a lot of TV shows in the 60s and 70s and radio programmes and would have been a bit of a household name. One example was that he provided the commentary on the Eurovision Song Contest in 1979, and he was five years a barrister at that point. Another example would be um, Owen the Pope O'Mahony, who was a genealogist as well as being a barrister, and he had a genealogical show on RTE called Meet the Clans, which was a prime Sunday afternoon slot, I believe. Uh, and people like Dennis Johnson, for example, uh, yeah. not somebody you necessarily would associate with RTE, but you were certainly associated with the BBC. I was just surprised to discover that he was a barrister. Yeah, he practised for, for, for quite a number of years. He managed to, to combine practising at the bar and working in theatre for a number of years. Um, but then I think the theatre was the stronger draw for him. Looking back at some of the plays that he wrote for the stage and that he later wrote for, for BBC television, some of them were very clearly inspired by either his own work as a barrister or by famous 19th century cases. So he has a TV show written about the murder at Newtown Stewart, which was a very infamous case where a police inspector was hanged for murder. 
Um, he also wrote a play about the um, the Kerwin murder on Ireland's Eye. So whether he carried out this research himself or whether this, these were stories that were passed down through the lore at the bar, I'm not sure. Um, also, of course, a very distinguished war correspondent for the for the BBC. So another another string to Dennis Johnson's bow. Absolutely. One thing that comes across in the book is that it can be a lonely profession. Yeah, this is something that came out in some of the interviews that I carried out with barristers. So there is a great emphasis on camaraderie at the bar. It's a communal workspace. Everybody's in there together. People socialise together and so on. But paradoxically, it it can be quite um, an isolated experience because everybody is self-employed, working for themselves. And no two practices were the same. No two barristers had the exact same experiences. So it did come out in the conversations that people did find a certain loneliness or a certain isolation, but that um, this wasn't necessarily something that was talked about. Um, Now, barristers are noted for their distinctive attire, at least they were noted for their distinctive attire. Where does that all come from? Where does the notion of the wigs and the gowns begin? So the wigs um, really date back to the 17th and 18th centuries. So when wigs were in fashion generally amongst the nobility and amongst the aristocracy in France and England, they were also worn by members of the legal profession. And when fashions moved on elsewhere, the legal profession kept the wigs. So when we look back to the 1920s, wigs were compulsory attire um, for barristers in court. And that didn't disappear until the 1990s. There would have been, I suppose, an opportunity with the burning down of the forecourts and the destruction of all those wigs and all those gowns to get rid of that and to establish a system which was very distinct from the from the British system. But that opportunity was not availed of. It wasn't. Um, there certainly was a period where barristers had to appear without their wigs and without their gowns because everything had been destroyed. But people were very eager to get back to a certain sense of normality. I suppose there had been so many changes, this maybe would have been one change too many. Um, How have the practices of being called to the bar and then devilling, so essentially becoming an apprentice barrister, how have they changed since the 1920s, do you know? Devilling has changed quite a bit. So devilling is um, where somebody works sort of as an apprentice Mm. um, for a more senior barrister, usually for their first year or so. And at this stage, it's a compulsory part of the qualification process. Everybody devils for at least a year. Most people now devil for two years. In the 1920s, it was optional. So you didn't have to devil. And if you deviled for someone, you often had to pay them for the privilege. These days, the people who do the deviling get paid. But back then, it was considered to be um, a privilege and an honour to get to follow somebody around and read their cases and get their advice. What also, what lay behind the, the rather Masonic mystery of taking silk, of becoming a senior counsel? And how has that changed over the years, if at all? So the, the phrase taking silk refers to the fact that um, the more senior members of the bar, the senior barristers, wear a black gown that's made from silk as opposed to the rougher material that the junior barristers wear. The process has changed quite a bit It used to be a fairly informal thing that you would maybe just write a very short letter to the Attorney General, to the Chief Justice and say, this is something I would like to do. And they would say yes or no. And whereas now it's a much more formalised procedure and there's a committee and there are various things that you need to show. And uh, finally, who was at the bar 
you know, who, who are the country's barristers? How has that changed since, since 19, 1921? I think early on in the book, you described the kind of the typical barrister in 1921 was male, Protestant and from Dublin. Yeah. That's changed, hasn't it? That definitely changed. It's changed now. And even by the end of the 1990s, which is the end of my period that I write about, it had changed quite a bit. I mean, we can see that the membership of the profession broadened out over that sort of 70, 80 year period. We had a you know, greater number of women being called to the bar. So by the 1990s, 40% of those called to the bar were women, as opposed to the, the tiny numbers early on. The introduction of things like free secondary education and free university fees opened out the, I suppose, the socioeconomic background of people who joined the bar. We had not very much ethnic diversity. There were often people from other countries who qualified as barristers here, studied in the King's Inns, but usually went back to their own countries to work afterwards. So there wasn't much ethnic diversity at the bar in the 20th century. One thing that came out quite a bit in the interviews was that the bar was generally seen as a fairly tolerant place for eccentricities. So people who were maybe a little bit different or who may not have thrived in a more structured work environment. It also came out in the interviews that the bar was maybe a little bit more tolerant of homosexuality than other workplaces would have been in the 20th century. And finally, is it a bit more democratic by 1999 or is it impossible to squeeze bar and democracy into the same sentence? Well, the Bar Council, which is the regulatory and representative body that represents the profession, were democratically elected. So I suppose we've got internal democracy in that sense. Neve Howland, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. The book is called Barristers in Ireland, an evolving profession since 1921. The author is my guest, Dr Neve Howland, and uh, many thanks again for joining us this evening, Neve. Thank you.